All the best campgrounds, in my opinion, have a hiker-biker section, a place for people who got there self-propelled. And that's where we'll be this hour, with the hikers and the bikers, hiking the Appalachian Trail, trekking with the Queen of Bhutan, and this bike trip I took through Yellowstone and Teton Parks. I'm Barrett Golding, and this is Hearing Voices from NPR. In the woods between Yellowstone Park and the town of West Yellowstone is the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. Like these wolves, my buddy Joseph and I are up early. Our plan is to sneak through the park on bicycles before the beasts come. The killers. I'm talking about recreational vehicles. It's mid-May. The roads have just opened. We figure if we can get in and out of the parks before the crowds arrive around Memorial Day weekend, then we might live to tell the tale. I think it's relatively dangerous myself. Uh, I bike a lot, but uh, once the park starts getting busy, I tend to cringe at those motorhome mirrors approaching me from the rear and knowing that these guys have maybe rented this vehicle and they might be driving it for two weeks a year. And I'm thinking, oh, God, do I want to be out biking with these folks out there? I'm Rick McAdam. I'm a supervisory park ranger in Yellowstone National Park. And it's a beautiful sunny day, almost cloudless here in Yellowstone. Who'd want to be anyplace else? But in the spring, that's when you're most likely to encounter bears near the roadsides. We have elk and bison, too that will graze right at the road edge as cars are passing by. And these are wild animals. People don't realize that because it becomes almost a petting zoo for them because the animals tolerate our presence so well. Yeah, it's, this is you know the American Serengeti. We have 372 miles of paved road. But then if you get up on some of the higher peaks and you just see the vast expanse of Yellowstone, you can pick out what's called the Yellowstone caldera. What's the caldera? The caldera is basically the volcanic rim the stereotypical picture of a volcano is what's left after it erupts. So what you're saying now is that if the if the motorhomes don't get us, the bears will. And if by some miracle we survive both of those, we're probably going to get. Oh, the, the super volcano! <laughs> yeah. Super volcano! Everybody put their cameras ready. Almost everybody in the park goes to see Old Faithful. Very. Then, a couple minutes later, almost everyone goes to get something to eat. Camp Gary's up until like 9 p.m. Okay, that's what the sign says. But unlike everybody else, we walked at night around the Upper Geyser Basin. Here the geysers are bigger, but by no means faithful. It's just us and a couple from San Francisco. They've been sitting all day by a pool of three geysers. Which go off all at once. The big one shoots up over 200 feet. This is Grand Geyser. To the left is Turban. And to the left of Turban is Vent, which comes out of a crack in Turban. Now these two may go for like an hour. Listen to that. Man, that is like music. The road through southern Yellowstone goes higher. Winter's just breaking up. We pass pools of frogs telling everybody hibernation is over. We cross three 8,000-foot passes in one afternoon. Lewis Lake is frozen, but it's warm and sunny. We're riding in our T-shirts between snowbanks above our heads. If you can't tell from what the frogs are saying, let me translate. It's another good day in Yellowstone. I love being exposed to the elements. It makes me feel alive. Really, it's not all that risky. Well, sometimes it is. Like yesterday, we had to bicycle through a bison herd. I'm not kidding. And that night, (laughs) we camp on Jackson Lake below the Tetons. 
a huge windstorm comes up. In the morning, we find it's blown down a 40-foot tree, maybe 10 yards from our tent. But hey, we're still here. And now we got some more stories for our grandkids. We ride over one more pass, this one 9,000 feet. Then all that elevation pays off. For the next couple dozen miles, we're cruising downhill to Dubois, Wyoming, the only town between Teton Park and the Wind River Reservation. If you go that direction towards the reservation, you'll see the deer in the fields, the bighorn sheep, and the antelope all within 15 miles. I'm Kathy Urbicut, and I've been in Wyoming 29 years, but we've only been in Dubois 3. Had a sheep ranch for years. And some years you got a dollar a pound for lambs, and some years you got 41 cents, and you can't pay your bills that way. Do you miss it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't like living in town. (laughs) It's too noisy. But the rich people are buying the ranches, subdividing, bringing more people in. There's a saying here that the billionaires have pushed the millionaires out of Jackson, and the millionaires have come to Dubois. (laughs) But... uh, You just live with it. Try and find some way to make money off the rich people. That's what, you know, most of us try and do. And that's okay. I mean, they got the money. They like good things. You try and provide them. I have a little shop downtown that, uh, you know, depends on the tourists. It's a wool and yarn shop. And if the tourists didn't come through in the summer, I couldn't keep it open. And I'm not the only one. (laughs) Well, things are just changing. (laughs) You know... (laughs) The West is changing. Into what? Who knows? I'm just glad we got to see it as it is now. Tomorrow, we head north through the park's gateway communities. Thermopolis, Cody, Red Lodge. We made it through the wilderness. Let's see if we can survive civilization. You are hearing voices, and we're not finished with the bikes. We'll be back in the saddle again soon. But first, Abner Surd. He's a fanatic, reactionary pedestrian. The way it begins, my friend Erin said she'd always wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail. She asked me if I'd do it with her, and I said I would, knowing it was probably just talk, doubting she'd ever really want to do it, and figuring it never hurts to dream. Then came the accident. A 60-mile-an-hour head-on collision. Three people died. Aaron spent four months in a hospital down in Phoenix. I wrote to her while she was convalescing. I told her I'd meet her on Springer Mountain in Georgia, maybe give her some motivation to get up on her shattered legs and walk again. Lest you get the wrong impression of me, I'd like to point out that I didn't stick around to help her get well. I wasn't there to lend her moral support during all those endless months of rehabilitation. I don't know how to be that kind of person. And this ain't that kind of story. This is a story about a fanatic reactionary pedestrian who despises motorized vehicles who thinks any distance is walking distance as long as they let him across the bridge, who promises to walk 2,000 miles from Georgia to Maine and then walks 3,000 miles just getting to Georgia. Good morning. Thursday morning, October 22nd. Well, it drizzled off and on for about half the night. 
the bivy sack I picked up about six weeks ago and haven't had much of a chance to use seems to have kept fairly dry. The sky that was all different shades of gray yesterday is all blue today with a patch of white here and there. The sun is up and the steam is coming off the wet ground and going to get moving eventually. I think I'll have breakfast first. So the question is, what is a fanatic reactionary pedestrian? How does one get to be this way? What drives a person, excuse the pun, to pick up and walk 3,000 miles on roads that clearly weren't meant for walking? It's a very strange sunset tonight. It's a very colorful sunset. It's brilliant reds and golds. A Hieronymus Bosch kind of theme. It looks like screaming demons from hell all racing to where the sun went down, flying through the sky with bellows of smoke and fire coming out of their mouths. Wow. You understand, I didn't start out to be a fanatic. I sort of grew into it over several tens of thousands of miles. I'm not as bad as I used to be, though. I mean, I don't throw rocks anymore. Tuesday afternoon, Texas City. Passing by looks like a Union Carbide plant. Another mad scientist's dream with giant gray stacks belching smoke and fire. I remember that time in Indiana, the guy in the Dodge Ram looking left and turning right, hurrying to beat the oncoming traffic, never came to a complete stop, pushed me a dozen feet backwards before he shut it down. If I hadn't managed to stay on my feet, he never would have seen me go under. Monday morning, the 15th of February. Walking on little tiny seashells on the beach in Louisiana. It's kind of sad that people don't walk on the beach anymore. Last night, Valentine's evening, went down to the beach at just about sunset. Watching all the Valentine's couples driving back and forth along the beach, driving in their four-wheel drive vehicles. Kinda made me feel like I'd lost somehow. I still have in my mind pictures of road kills that would break your heart. You want to hear about them? No, that's okay. I can describe them in great detail. Are you sure you don't want to hear it? No, we don't need that. Thank you very much. The dog thrown up against the barbed wire fence? No. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. Just had a encounter with a young woman back in Franklin. 20, 25 years old and a couple of guys, but she did all the talking. She wanted to know where I took baths at. She said, you got a gun, right? I said, no, I haven't got a gun. She said, oh, you gotta get yourself a gun. I said, they told me I can't have a gun until I start taking my medication again. I hear a lot these days about racial profiling. Racial profiling. I don't know how many times I've been stopped and questioned by Officer Friendly, not because I was doing anything wrong, but only because I happened to be passing through town on foot. I want to tell these guys, look, all the really successful criminals drive cars. I should think that's obvious. In fact, the better the car, the more successful the criminal. You should be stopping people in BMWs. The Huey P. Long Bridge over the Mississippi River. 
Well, we got about a third of the way across the bridge, and a state police officer hit his lights and stopped and got out of the car and started yelling. He didn't have very good people skills, so I started yelling back at him. I don't have very good people skills either, nor very much common sense. But I found out there is no bridge anywhere in the state of Louisiana that you can walk across the Mississippi River. It is prohibited. It is becoming illegal to get across this country on foot. I can't believe anybody building a bridge across a river for four lanes of automobiles and not even considering pedestrians and bicycles. Anyway, waiting on a bus to get across the river. I don't have the energy to get across any other way right now. You've got to be out there, breathing exhaust fumes every day. You've got to walk down the road at night and step on a lump and not know whether it's a piece of blown-out tire or another dead owl. That's how you get to be a fanatic reactionary pedestrian. You can read all you want about the paving of America, about urban sprawl and smog and vanishing habitat and on and on, but that's just theory. It's awful out there by the side of the road. It gets worse every day. And here's the crux. Instead of saying to yourself, hey, it's pretty bad out here, it's ugly and noisy and smelly and dangerous and I don't really want to be here. Next time, I'm going to drive. Instead of saying that, you've got to say to yourself, hey, it's pretty bad out here, but driving ain't going to make it any better. That's how you get to be a reactionary pedestrian. The fanatic part... Well, let's just take it one step at a time. Abner Surd is a fanatic reactionary pedestrian. With music by Jeff Arnst, You are hearing voices of hikers and bikers. And we're back on those bikes now on the east side of Yellowstone Park, riding north. The places we pass have names that tell a story. Crowheart, Fort Washakie, St. Stephen's Indian School. Winter has just let go of the high plains, and the rainy season is settling in. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's Memorial Day. But for some reason, people are telling me stories about killing and dying. Dan Herring's a taxidermist in Thermopolis. He loves to hunt. You get up in the morning at 4. It's 25 below zero. You drive your car 40 miles west of here in the snow and on the ice and you park somewhere in the timber, and it's still dark, and you walk to a point to sit till it gets to be daylight. As the sun starts rising, of course, the temperature falls a little bit more, and you're glassing, and you're shaking, and you're thinking, why am I here? You know, this is absolutely no fun at all. I need warmer clothes. I should be home where it's warm. And then two miles away, you see a bunch of elk. You're not cold anymore. You're ready to go. And let me tell you, elk can really cover the country. And by the time you walk over there, nine times out of ten, they're gone. That's the thrill of the hunt. Pulling the trigger is the tiny, tiny part of it. And for people that think that elk hunting is glorious, when you get a 600-pound elk on the ground five miles from the car and it's 25 below zero, and you've got to skin it and quarter it and put it on your back and make four trips in and out to take that meat to the car... People that think hunting is easy and it's an unfair advantage that you have, come out in November and go elk hunting with me. 
it's about seeing all the other things that are out there besides pulling the trigger. The guy that just lives to pull the trigger is a killer, not a hunter. This is the M249 Squad Automatic Weapon. It's air-cooled, gas-operated, belt-fed weapon. And uh, put it on fire. Uh, well, I'm Buck Wilkerson. I'm a retired soldier. Cover, 26 years. Make sure the chamber's clear. 14 years in Special Forces. Right this this weekend is the Honor Special Operations Forces weekend, and Cody is maybe the most red, white, and blue city in this country. Patriotism just reeks all over the place. Look down the street. All you see is red, white, and blue in Cody, Wyoming. People here actually realize that there's a war going on. Is the M9 pistol. It's basically a normal Beretta, but we've added a silencer to it for, you know, taking out sentry guard dogs or even the sentries themselves. My name is Tech Sergeant David Owens, and I'm with the 2-2 STS, which is the 22nd Special Tactics Squadron in McCord. And uh, I'm normally not much of a publicity guy. I'm really not. I'm, I'm the guy that sneaks through the jungle with a, with a bayonet, you know. So I, this isn't exactly my cup of tea, but I'm, I'm learning to enjoy it quite a bit because I get to interact with people like you who are interested in this because I'm not a very social person, but I, I do love talking about gear, and I like, I like talking about who we are. But uh, there's just a drive deep down in our souls that special ops seems to cater to, and, and you know, it's, it's almost spiritual to me. We want things that other people don't want. We volunteer for things that other people will be horrified to think of even doing. You know, they don't want to walk that far, that fast, with that much weight. They don't want to exit an aircraft in night, you know, at 17,000 feet. That's not something your average Joe does. It's not something normal humans do. It goes against every fiber of your survival instinct. But basically what I want civilians to be able to understand about us is that we're not doing this just because it looks cool. We're doing it because we feel that this country needs somebody stalwart to defend it. I, I just hope they understand that when we're downrange in the battlefield, we're pretty much giving up everything that we are, and we're risking everything that we ever had just to make sure we fulfill our mission. You know, A life spent defending this country is a life well spent. You know, If I died today, you know, it would be, be a good death. More bikes and trekking with the Queen of Bhutan. That's coming up in a minute on Hearing Voices. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. This is Hearing Voices with Hiker Biker. One reason I like bike touring is it's fast enough so you get a lot of places, but slow enough to see things along the way and meet people. Here's one more person we met. Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ lives inside of me. That's good, but you got to live for yourself also. I don't live for myself. I live for Jesus. Because Jesus he's my life. You've got to live for yourself. Now, see, I know personally that heaven. How do you know is personally? Have you really talked to God? My own. Have you talked to God? Place. Yes, I have. Yes. Really, if you look around the world, we're very far from the real nature of God. Not like the way things are in heaven, because that's what God's real intention is: is for things on earth to be the way they are in heaven. And uh, I've been to heaven. And it's, it's a tremendous place. How'd you it, get there? Jesus, he by his spirit can take you. You come up out of your body. And then you see all of the angels that accompany him. And you end up going into this place called heaven. But you can hear and smell and taste and touch and see. A lot of times what happens is I'll end up going to places where Jesus is traveling throughout the universe. The planet Earth is not the only creation that he's created. And the only way to have these kind of experiences is you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> and that's, there's no other way to get out of your body. But, but you've been to these places. Have been there personally. And you seem like a really sane, calm well-spoken man to me, but that, what you're telling me sounds a kind of crazy. It's not crazy. Don't you think it sounds crazy? No, because it's real to me. 
I mean, it's just like, I know what it's like to physically die. I've OD'd three times because I've OD'd on crack, I've OD'd on heroin, and I've OD'd on cocaine. So I know what that's like. What was it like? Your soul separates from your body, and you're standing outside of it, and then you get really afraid. And so the first thing you want to do is get back in there. But when you have Jesus Christ living inside of you, the first thing that you want to do is go to wherever he is. And nothing is a fearful thing to you. It's just, it's one of the most wonderful things. That's Ambassador William Hardrick of the Kingdom of Heaven Embassy. Guitar by Jess Atkins. And thanks to Joseph Rabanek, my two-wheeled co-conspirator who's as addicted to long bike trips as I am. As addicted as the Queen of Bhutan is to trekking. That's right, Bhutan. It's a country in the mountains between India and China. Every year, the queen goes on long treks. She visits remote villages and promotes what they call the gross national happiness. Stephanie Geyer-Stevens of Outer Voices was the first foreign journalist ever invited to accompany a Bhutanese monarch on one of these treks and the first to interview the queen. This is the cry of the dragon. This is the sound of the dragon. I think it was in the 13th century, Lama Jariba built up his own school of Buddhism, today known as the Tupacaji. It's believed to have been prophesied that there will be a land where Buddhism will flourish. Everybody was looking for some sign and... The story says that at the time there was the roaring dragons in the sky and then the Lama said, this is the sign, it should be the Drupa, the dragon school. So the dragon school of Buddhism was established and in this 17th century, Shabdungaon Namgyal, who unified the country, was the hierarch of the school and then the country naturally came to be known as the dragon country. Bhutan is known as Rukyu, the land of thunder dragon. Druk symbolizes for Bhutanese everything that's positive. Omnipresence, compassion, power. Power in not destroying others, but power in destroying your own self-ego. When you hear a roar of thunder, we don't say it's thunder. We say it's a dragon. Rukyu means land of the dragon. It's a land of... Eternity, it's a land of uh, happiness. Welcome to Bhutan, ladies and gentlemen. We have now arrived at Paro Airport. The local time is 7 in the morning. Please keep your mobile phone switched off and remain seated with the seatbelts fastened until the sun has been switched off. I'm looking at the map. I'm trying to figure out where we're going. This is our special permit. It says we're cool to travel. Hereby permitted to stay in restricted areas. Punaka, Wangdu, Sirang, Sarpang, Trangsa, Buntung, Mangar, Trashigang, Sandrup, Jankar only. Most of the places are not on the map. Let me see if we can at least find the trucking part that we're going to do. It's in the southeast part of Bhutan. So Zanthari must be up here or something. I am really confused. The way this whole story started was I was invited to come to Bhutan to meet a woman who runs an organization there to end domestic violence. Once I got there, I found out that actually the organization is founded by one of the queens of Bhutan, Queen Ashi Sange Chodim Wangchuk. And so what she does is she treks into the really remote parts of Bhutan on a regular basis to go and meet the people, finding out how she can help make their lives better. 
What you do have to realize, the experience that you will have will be different when you're traveling with the queen in the areas that you're going to be traveling, which is quite isolated and they don't have so much contact with outside people. It's her journey and uh, it'll be different. I normally start my mornings by praying to my deity, the Tara. It's a good way of just meditating in prayers, starting the day with prayers for all sentient beings. And to see you through the day, you know, with their strength. So, we're here on the trail with the Queen of Bhutan. The queen is a serious trekker. This is not a walk in the park. Everyone better take it easy. We've got a long journey ahead of us. So now we're going to cross this nice bridge. You have to be a little careful because it sways quite a bit. The river is named after the deity, Jomo. It's a local deity, and she's the main deity for this part of Bhutan. And this is her river that we're walking along, and that goes all the way from Shinkalauri and eventually to India. If you go further north, it's the Tibetan area of Tsuna. The king there was a very um, tyrannical king and he, he was getting the shadow of a mountain on his palace. Instead of moving his palace, he wanted to move this mountain. So the people were used in a very um, cruel way to cut down this mountain. And Jomo, the goddess, appeared to the people and said, wouldn't it be easier to cut the king's head than to cut the mountain? And so they assassinated the king and they ran away into Bhutan. And all the way, this group of people were led by Jomo, the goddess. She hands out clothing and she asks everybody that comes like what their health issues are. She has eye problems. And if there's any serious health issues, she has them, you know, commanded to be taken to the hospital. I don't think she can see. Look, please, doctor, have a look. I don't think she can see her eyes. Yesterday we met an old couple who were blind. And so then and there she commanded, okay, you guys go go to the hospital and get your cataracts operated on. It's kind of worthwhile showing up to meet the queen. <laughs> there was a lady in our village with a huge goiter. It was huge. It was like a, out like this. And everybody has been telling her that you know, it's possible to get it removed. One visit, Her Majesty came, she touched it herself, and she said, oh, this is absolutely removable. It will not affect you. Because Her Majesty spoke to her with such conviction, and she believed her immediately. She said, okay, I'm going to go to Thimphu and get it removed. And that was really what it means for the queen to come and just... It gives them so much confidence, so much trust. It's kind of a divine advice, and she only believed her, and now she's completely all right. So Her Majesty going like this has a huge impact on the lives of people.
everybody comes from hours away. They all live in the mountains. Like, we look out and we see these huge, what looks like wilderness. But really, it's full of people. I mean, people are living all around these hills. They just live so sparsely that they hardly make a dent. You can't even tell. I mean, sometimes you can see a little trail going up a hill. But other than that, all you see is the woods. People live... And so they come, you know, from two hours walk, three hours, four hours walk. They'll come down to meet the queen. I mean, this is the first time she's ever been in this area. So this is a really big deal for them, you know. So, tell me what you like so much about trekking, about walking. One of the biggest incentives is to be with the people. And also at the grassroots level, is nice to get more information about their awareness on different health issues. They all want to check with the doctor. But we're in around an hour's walk from the last place that we stopped for tea. And we just walked across this beautiful suspension bridge over the river gorge. And as usual, we're met by all of the local llamas in their maroon robes, which I'm getting used to very fast, which I can't allow myself to do because it's still so stunning to arrive behind the queen and have everybody so excited to see her and you can see the look in their eyes old people babies moms you know it's it's beautiful that was nice now it's a longer rest lunch rest yes yes please and so now what happens every time we get to one of these places is they've constructed these little shade shelters with wood and banana leaves. It's roof of the one that we're sitting under is banana leaves. Yellow is the color of the royalty, so they put yellow banners around the edge of these shade shelters and along the back of them. And then they make a little sort of makeshift throne. This one's made out of a few rugs, and then they put offerings. There's a little bowl with rice and some incense sticks so that by the time we get here, that's what we smell is the incense, you know? This place is like stepping back hundreds of years. It's so quiet there's a path leading to this village and that's all there's no cars there's no noise the only sound is people prayer flags and the wind we have reached Shinkalauri so her majesty will raise awareness on health issues particularly HIV and AIDS family planning health and hygiene and also listen to people of what their problems are and uh, see how she can help with their problems. And not forgetting about domestic violence issues as well. That's what will be happening today. It's an opportunity for the people to see their queen, you know, sitting with them, uh, talking to them on a very personal level. She had 11 children, only five are surviving. Yeah, I'll see you. 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 I'll see you
She knows the situation of these people. She talks about prostitution, battered women, women's shelters, women living with AIDS. I think it's through her advocacy that things like this have come into everyday language, otherwise they'd just be hidden things. Basically we are talking about how to prevent deaths which are preventable. That's why we are promoting family planning, issues like reproductive health, maternal mortality. People come here to see Her Majesty. And that's why we try to use this occasion to educate people on this. There's this group of schoolboys and they're doing this skit about Mr. Condom. They have condoms and they're blown up like balloons and they're taped all over his chest and he's, you know, boxing with Mr. No Condom. And definitely Mr. Condom is winning the boxing match. So the men with long hair, uh, it, it signifies that they have gone through the meditation of uh, three days, three years, three months. And they have this culture mostly, in, in, particularly in this area. So you see all men with long hair. It's not punks, but monks. They're not hippies, but they are the Buddhist practitioners. When we were talking about health issues, talking about reproductive health, HIV, AIDS, alcohol and about you know violence against women the group of gomchins religious men that had gathered here we tried to encourage them to be aware and when they go to the homes to say prayers and when they travel all around the villages for them also to be able to educate and impart what they know and what they hear from us and to be involved because people look up to them they listen to them her Majesty gave me uh, her best wishes. We meet a young monk or a gomchen. Her Majesty told that it is the responsibility of this monastic body to make the village people understand about HIV AIDS and alcoholic problem. I'm knowing myself about what HIV is and I also did one checkup and I know I'm HIV free. I see the many domestic problems are being caused by alcohol only. And if alcohol is being totally banned in the villages, the problem would reduce to zero percent. They mentioned about their families being aware about going to the hospitals to check when they're expecting their wives and their children, and that they make sure that their women go and have uh, checkups and have their fab smears done. So they're very supportive. And then we were very happy to hear that now they drink less alcohol. So it was nice interacting with them and learning that you're on the right track. Asking if they drink alcohol. <laughs> Standing in front of a crowd like this, do you imagine they would admit to it? She's saying she takes uh, at least one cup a day. Oh, before she goes to sleep. Oh, no. <laughs> and also during lunch. And also during tea break. <laughs> Quite a lot. Uh, initially she said she takes at least one cup a day, and then she added that during lunchtime as well, and during tea break. <laughs> so, yes. That's quite a bit. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> When a man volunteered, he said he has never heard of domestic violence in his village here. So the woman said, uh, oh yes, there's plenty of people drink, and uh, there are also uh, plenty of women who go through uh, abusive relationship. Okay. So I was telling them that uh, if they can, they should stop. But if they if they do not stop, it's also criminal. They have to know that. Last <laughs> Amagi
And I was also telling them that we have volunteers all over now. We know what you're doing. <laughs> Sometimes it works. Karma, by definition, is what goes around comes around. I was talking to one of her ladies, one of the clients. She was sharing that maybe it's her karma. Maybe it's her negative karma that she accumulated in the past. That whatever she's going through now is because of that. She has to tolerate so that she will be born into a better life. And she had been tolerating abuse for the past 13 years. Even her elders, even some of the religious persons have been advising her that it's your karma and that you should tolerate. There was a folk belief that was perpetuated over generations that women were inferior in birth. Women had to be born and reborn nine times after living good lives that you would be born as a man. And women began to internalize these beliefs that you were indeed inferior. You know, these are the shallow understanding of what karma, compassion, about all these things. So what we had been trying to tell her and what we tell to all the survivors and victims is that they're accumulating more negative karma now by tolerating because by allowing her abuser to abuse her, she's helping him accumulate negative karma. If women understand that and they see the bigger picture and they're willing to break away from that cycle of violence. If women are not safe in the place they are supposed to be the safest, how are we going to achieve gross national happiness? towards cross-national happiness. When we talk about happiness, I think health is so important. When you talk about health of families, it's the women who can make a difference. Gross national happiness is a system put in place by the king of Bhutan so that the success of Bhutan, the success of this country, is measured by the happiness of its people rather than by the product that the country has created. It's not the short-term happiness that we are talking about when we talk about gross national happiness. It's not the destination to arrive at, but it's the process. It's the manner in which we travel. Finally, the sun has come over the hill. So... It's sort of like morning is just beginning, although we've already been walking for hours. You're lucky today is not very sunny, no? It's good. <laughs> it's good weather for walking. It's kept it nice and cool. We talked to the weather gods last night. Oh, you did? Okay, oh, thank you for doing that. We just ask them to make it very pleasant <laughs> with the long walk ahead. The Queen's Track was produced by Stephanie Geyer-Stevens and Jack Chance for Outer Voices, edited by Barrett Golding. Major underwriting was provided by Terry Causey and the Shelley and Donald Rubin Foundation. You heard the voices of Chimmy Wangmo, Kunzang Choden, Yeshe Dorji, 
and Queen Ashi Sange Choden Wangchak. Musical performances by Jigme Drukpa and the Kuju Lu Young Ensemble. Additional music was recorded by Jack Chance. Special thanks to Her Majesty Queen Ashi Sange Choden Wangchak, the staff and clients of Renew Bhutan, Chering Uden Penjor, Francoise Pomeret, Ariana Maki, the Royal Bodyguard and the Royal Bhutan Army, the Zulika Nunnery, Hotel Ziwaling, and the people of Daifam, Zamtari, and Shingalari villages. For more information about Renew, please visit www.renewbhutan.org. The Queen's Trek is a production of Outer Voices. For more information, visit us online at outervoices.org. Thanks for listening. Stephanie Geyer-Stevens of Outer Voices. Field recordist Jack Chance runs mountainmusicproject.org. I'm Barrett Golding. There's links to everything you heard at hearingvoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.